Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I hope you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're going to start in Mark chapter 7 here in just a few minutes. Uh, appreciate the opportunity for you all letting me come and speak uh, this morning. I know some of you pretty well. I know some of you not at all. Uh, and so that's cool. Uh, that's one of the coolest things I think for me. As wasn't until I was in college that I really realized what a great blessing it is to be in the Lord's church. Um, I got to spend the summer after my freshman year of college traveling around the country to almost all of the states. We hit pretty much every corner of the country, and everywhere that we went, there were a group of people that loved the Lord, that loved Jesus, that were my family, that I could worship with, and that was just amazing to me. And so, you all are my family. I might not know you personally. But we have that connection in the Lord, and I'm so grateful for you all. Um, the Christians in Gettysburg send their greetings to you all as well. Uh, and, and we think about you all a lot. We pray for you a lot. We have connections with you all, and we're, and we're excited about the work that's happening here. Uh, I want to speak this morning in uh, Mark chapter 7. I think this is one of my favorite passages or teaching moments of Jesus. It's just a really cool interaction that Jesus has, and I think a very valuable and important lesson for us rooted deep within this chapter of what Jesus wants to get to. Uh, I, I titled this lesson, A Matter of the Heart, and so we're going to be talking about our hearts. When you think about our heart, there are a few phrases that come up in my mind. Maybe one that you're familiar with is uh, not a matter of the heart, but getting to the heart of the matter. Uh, it's kind of a different spin on that phrase. I think we're familiar with that, that idea of getting to the heart of the matter or the heart of the, the situation that we're in. I personally have kind of a love-hate relationship with getting to the heart of the matter. In one aspect or one sense, getting to the heart of the matter can be a very liberating type of thing. Like, say you're in a, a conversation with someone or a difficult kind of argument or scenario, and you're hitting all the peripherals and, and just kind of beating around the bush, and, and you want to solve something, but it seems like you're just kind of spinning your wheels, not making any traction, and then you get to the point in the conversation where you realize, that's what we need to talk about. Now we're at the heart of the matter. And that can be a really freeing, liberating, exciting kind of feeling that you're actually getting where you need to go. On the other hand, the heart of the matter can be a really daunting, painful thing to get to, particularly whenever you get to the heart of the matter within yourself and introspection or kind of confronting yourself that now you can't hide behind the peripherals and all the other things that aren't really the big issue. But now we're talking about what's really the problem. And having that kind of confrontation with yourself is really painful, really hurtful, or whenever you have to have that conversation with someone else and get to the heart of the matter of their actions, that can be a hard thing for us to do. But I think the idea of getting to the heart of the matter is actually a very biblical idea and something that Jesus really encourages and wants us to do in, in trying to change ourselves and consider ourselves as we grow to be more like him. So I want to look at Mark chapter 7. Really where I want to get to is Mark 7 verse 17 and following. But before we get there, we're going to start at the beginning of the chapter and look at the context to give an idea of what Jesus is going to do here in this conversation. So we'll start reading Mark chapter 7 in verse 1 and we'll read 1 through 5. It says, Now when the Pharisees had gathered to him some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? This is a really interesting 
interaction here. And Mark helps us to kind of make some sense of what's going on. He gives a little bit of commentary of the background of this whole situation. The Pharisees and the scribes who Jesus all the time had confrontations with and was butting heads with, they come to Jesus in this moment and they say, we realize and we see your disciples aren't doing something that we think they should be doing. And in this particular instance, they're not keeping with the tradition of the Jewish elders and washing their hands properly. Now, some of you all might be thinking, like, if you're not familiar with the story, aren't they washing their hands when they eat? My, my wife is all about hand washing and she gets on me all the time for not washing my hands all the time and we're about to eat and I'm about to cut some vegetables or something and get ready. Did you wash your hands? Did you wash your hands? That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about like hygiene, hand washing or that sort of thing. This is something, and Mark makes it very clear, that this is some kind of spiritual washing that they're engaging in. Some type of idea that maybe they go to the marketplace and they might encounter or interact with somebody that maybe wasn't spiritually pure or clean. And so before they touch anything or do anything, they need to make sure that they cleanse their, their physical bodies so that they're not corrupting their soul somehow. And Mark makes it very clear in verses three and four that this is not a commandment of God. This is not something that you're gonna turn back in the Old Testament to like Leviticus or Exodus or Deuteronomy and, and find God's instructions instructions for this to happen. This was purely tradition. This was something that was put in place by man and not something that they had to follow here. But regardless, the Pharisees bring this complaint to Jesus. They say, you are not doing what you're supposed to be doing following the tradition of the elders. So let's look at Jesus's response in verses 6 through 13. 6 through 13, Jesus responds and he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if, man, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or for his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And so Jesus' first response to them is to rebuke them. He rebukes them for their hypocrisy. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Because his prophecy said that you're honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Um, they're more concerned with their rules, with their commandments, with their traditions, with their way of doing things than they are with God's way of doing things. And this hand-washing situation is just one example, but Jesus zeroes in on another example. He says in verse nine, you're rejecting the commandment of God because Moses said, God's command through Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, what I would have given to you is Corban. I gave it to God. Now that's kind of a weird situation. We won't go into a lot of detail about what that is, but basically what the Jews did was they said, yeah, we might have to honor our parents when they get older financially, but we can think of a loophole to get out of that. You can say, instead of giving your finances and help to your parents whenever they're aging, you can say, well, I've already dedicated my financial uh, kind of uh, rest, uh, my finances to God instead. And so they're dedicated to God, I don't have to give them to my parents, but you can still kind of keep them for yourself. It was just this roundabout way of ignoring taking care of your parents like God had designed the family to work. And Jesus says, you are rejecting and making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. Um, Jesus 
cared about the hearts of these people, and they clearly weren't caring about their heart and the different situations and and traditions that they had come up with. And I want to just make one side point here. I like making this point whenever I'm reading through Mark with somebody, because this is a fairly common idea that people have. Um, Jesus quotes about this heart situation, and did you notice where he quoted from when he's talking about the heart that God says? In verse 6, it says, from Isaiah, this prophecy from Isaiah and the Old Testament. There's this idea that the Old Testament God was really uh, kind of concerned with rule keeping and following of commands and that sort of thing. And in the New Testament, suddenly God changed and now he cares really deeply about our hearts. That's not how God is. God has always cared deeply about the heart and where our hearts are. And the following of commandments is an example of where our hearts actually are. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But it's got to start inwardly and in our hearts. And we'll kind of dissect that and talk more about that as we move forward. But that's just kind of a side point to this. If you ever talk to somebody that thinks, well, God used to not really care about where your heart was. He did. All the way back from the beginning. We can find numerous examples of God doing that. But back to what we're talking about. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He goes on in verse 14. uh, And he says, Verse 14 of Mark 7 says, He called the people again to himself, and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's kind of an interesting teaching that Jesus comes up with. And the first time that you're reading through this, if you're not familiar with this story, you might think, that's really out of left field. Like, what are we talking about? He's First, he's talking about hand washing. Then he's talking about honoring your father and mother. Then he's talking about this prophecy from Isaiah. And then he says, the things that go into you don't defile you. It's what comes out that defiles you. It's a little bit fuzzy, a little bit strange. And if maybe you're a little confused reading through that, you're not alone. In verse 17, when he entered into the house and left the people, his disciples came and asked him about the parable. What are you talking about when you're talking about what comes out of you is the thing that actually defiles you? And and Jesus is going to explain more deeply this, this really important, I think, foundational principle of where our hearts are, training our hearts, cleansing our hearts, and how that leads to this outpouring of following God and being obedient servants like he wants us to be. So that gets us to the context of where I want to go. Let's read Mark chapter 7 starting in verse 17, in this, I think, really powerful teaching moment from Jesus. Whenever he entered the house and he left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. He said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Um, Jesus expounds on what he's saying by saying, what you eat even if your hands aren't ceremonially cleansed, that doesn't change who you are on the inside. That doesn't have any effect on your your character or your inner being. That's not what actually defiles you. He says, what comes out of you is what defiles you because that shows what's actually inside of you. That shows what's in your heart, the type of person that you are, the type of things that you care about, your actions, the things that flow out of you are what defile you. 
This is a really fundamental point that Jesus is making here. Really, he's saying the heart is the the kind of command center of our lives. Um, The heart originates all of our heart, all of our thoughts, our feelings, our words, our actions. Everything comes out of the heart, even evil thoughts and feelings that we have. Those outbursts of anger or wrath that we might experience, that came from inside of me. It didn't just come from nowhere. Um, those maybe profane words that we might let slip sometimes. That, that's not an accident. That comes from somewhere. That originates in our hearts. Um, there's nothing that bypasses our heart on the way out. Everything goes through the command hub, the command center of our lives. Everything exits out of our hearts. So this is a really important point. We're going to make some implications and applications of this in this lesson, but I want to spend some time looking elsewhere in Scripture and just really fortifying this point of what Jesus is saying, that the heart is where all of our being originates. Look over at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 in verse 45. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, this is the same context as a good tree bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing bad fruit. He says in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We already mentioned that. Our, our words are an overflow of the contents of our heart, the things that we say. Um, John chapter 13, this is an interesting one to me. In John chapter 13, uh, this is in the last week of Jesus' life. He's made it back to Jerusalem. He's uh, eating the Passover feast with his disciples. And it says in verse 2, John 13 and verse 2, During supper, whenever the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Do you notice what it said that the devil did concerning Judas? He put something into his heart. He went for his heart. Now, why did Satan go for Judas's heart? He he knew that's what directs a person's life. If I can get your heart, I can change what you're going to do. And even Jesus's disciple, one of the 12, when his heart wasn't right, betrayed the Lord. Acts chapter 5, this is similar, similar kind of idea. Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, familiar story, I think, to a lot of us. The church has just begun in Jerusalem. Uh, they're starting to sell and, and share with one another to help one another. And we uh, interact with Barnabas in chapter 4. And then we meet this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, in chapter 5, who they sell part of their land, but then lie about how much they actually sold it for, making it seem like they'd given more than what they'd actually given. And in verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Um, Again, this idea of Satan attacking the heart. Uh, Peter recognizes and he calls out. He said, yeah, you did this bad thing, but the problem is you let Satan get into your heart. You you, you didn't have your guards up. You didn't protect your heart from what was going to happen. Um, Another idea in Acts, Acts chapter 8, a couple chapters over, in verse 21 
Uh, Philip has gone down. Philip, one of the seven, has gone down to Samaria. He started preaching and teaching in the, the villages in Samaria and needs some help. And so Peter and John come down and they start teaching and preaching and they're laying hands on people and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And Simon, the magician, he sees what's going on there and he wants the ability. He wants to be able to take that ability to pass on the Holy Spirit for the people. And he says, I'll buy it from you for some money. Let me, let me pay you to have the ability to uh, pass on the Holy Spirit with the laying out of my hands. And in verse 21, what Peter says to him, uh, we'll actually start in verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you have thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. That's really curious and interesting what Peter does there, because what Simon says here is not a good thing. What Simon the sorcerer requests or what he asks for, it's not a good thing. But Peter doesn't really reprimand the action itself. He says, you shouldn't have done that. But he gets right to the actual problem. He says, your heart is not right before God. So you need to repent and beg God to forgive the intention of your heart and change your heart. We might look at something like that, like a misbehavior, and say, well, that's just a behavioral issue. We can, we can nip that in the bud. But really, behavioral issues originate in a bad heart, a heart that needs to be changed, a heart that needs to be trained in those different ways. Or Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 27. Go back to the Old Testament. This is not just exclusive idea like we pointed out to the New Testament. In Proverbs 27 and verse 19, very simple proverb, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of a man reflects the man. You look in a mirror, you see yourself, you can see what you look like. You look at a person's heart, you know what they are. You know who they are, you know what, what makes them tick. Uh, you can see a person from their heart. So all of these passages, and there are more, are making really clear what we see in Mark chapter 7. That our hearts originate who we are in our hearts. Um, now, that's a pretty simple statement to make, I think, that, that our hearts determine the kind of person that we are. But let's make it personal just for a moment. <clears throat> Have you ever done something that kind of surprised you in your life? Um, like maybe you said something or you did something and, and you thought, I can't believe I said that. Or I can't believe I did that. Or I don't know where that came from. That's not me. Those kind of moments where like we kind of slip wow, like that's not normally the kind of person that I am. I think Jesus would say, I know exactly where that came from. That slip up, that moment where you said something you shouldn't have, where you treated someone that you shouldn't have treated them, where you were maybe too harsh or aggressive or even cruel to someone, that came from inside of you. That deep down somewhere, that's who you are. That's not who you have to stay as. You can change through the grace of God, but there's something inside of you that needs to change. Um, what about this? This is usually said of like maybe uh, younger people, maybe like teenagers or something, like talking about them, say, well, here, see, yeah, maybe they mess up sometimes, but they have a good heart. Um, their heart's right. Um, or, you know, yeah, he messes up, but he has a good heart. Now, I'm not saying that if someone messes up, that their heart is just wretched. And I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching either, that when we mess up, our hearts are just, just disgusting, wretched things. But if somebody makes a mistake or is thoughtless or careless or rude, I think Jesus is saying that's an indication of that person's heart. Maybe that person does have a good heart sometimes, but they have some more cleaning up that they need to do, 
some more growing in God's grace that they need to do. Um, or maybe similarly, um, maybe you make a mistake uh, and you're trying to make amends with someone uh, and, and you say, yeah, I'm sorry for what I did or what I said, um, but you know my heart, right? Uh, you know I didn't really mean it. You know my heart. In reality, whenever we say something unkind or cruel to someone, they know our hearts better than they ever did. Now, they actually know what's deep down inside of us because it's surfaced now. Uh, or maybe internally, uh, trying to justify our actions to ourselves. Um, we think, well, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have done this or that, fill in the blank. I wouldn't have responded in that way or said that thing if they hadn't done whatever. Try to kind of outsource the, the things that we do to other people. It's not my responsibility for why I did the things that I did, but it's something else. And yeah, there are external factors that can tempt us into behaving in certain ways, but at the end of the day, my heart controls me like your heart controls you. You don't force me to do or say anything. You can't. It's my decision. It falls on me when I do something that's not good. Or we're thinking about this for uh, a minute. I'm thinking about like kids. And I'm not talking about like infants, um, but like, I don't know, maybe toddlers. And you can think about this for a while. But when a child screams because they don't get what they want, um, and, and they're just throwing this, this tantrum because they don't get what they want, if they understand a parent's command, but they're refusing to follow it, I think Jesus would say that child has a heart problem. Now, I don't think that means like they're necessarily sinful or, or something like that, but they've got an issue in their heart that needs correcting. And I think the Bible shows that. Look at Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22 and verse 15. Folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from them. A child can have heart problems. And so that's where... The responsibility of parents comes in to train the heart of a child in the way that they should go. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because from a very young age, our hearts are messed up and we have to train them in the proper direction that God wants us to be in. And so with all of that said, all those different ways that we can apply that to our lives, I think that makes Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 even more potent. Look at Proverbs 4, 23. Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Uh, this is one of my favorite Proverbs or ideas. Because pro uh, what Solomon does here is he compares the heart to being like this kind of spring or well inside of us that need to be guarded and protected with all vigilance and diligence. Because that's the source of our life. Now, maybe that's a little bit lost on us, uh, the, the point of what Solomon is making in a water-abundant 21st century kind of country. But you think about the context of maybe what Solomon was thinking about back then, the value that a spring or a well had in a particular community of this fresh water source, what that would have been like. I've done a little bit of reading on like history and, and wars and strategies and things like that in ancient times. And from what I understand, if you're going to war with some country, you would typically want to find their water source and poison it or dilute it or, or damage it in some way. Because if a, a people doesn't have water, they can only last maybe a day or two before they have to give up. And so if you're thinking about that, 
from a, a militaristic standpoint, if you know the value or the importance of your spring or your well, and you're preparing for war or preparing your city to kind of guard it from people that might come and attack it, where might you put the guards for your city? You probably put some on the walls. That makes sense to guard the walls, guard the exterior uh, of the, the city. Maybe the gates would get a little bit more people because those are kind of the weak points of the wall. You'd put some special forces maybe near your water source, wherever that is. Make sure that there are people dedicated and some safeguards dedicated to protect that water so that people couldn't sneak in and poison that in some way. And so Solomon is saying here that we need to guard our hearts with vigilance and diligence because that's where our life comes from. Um, and I want to just think about that from like a carnal pers- perspective. Um, guarding our hearts and from a fleshly standpoint, there are few things, a uh, few like medical conditions that are taken more seriously than a heart problem. Um, you know, we, we might go for uh, a month or something like that before getting like a rash checked out. Um, or, you know, my pinky toe kind of hurts a little bit, but I'm not really going to go to the doctor. It's not a big deal. But when you feel like a heart flutter, suddenly it's real. <laughs> like, I need to get this checked out now. Even from a physical standpoint, if my heart is showing problems, that's serious. Think about how much more important our spiritual heart health is. Um, When there are problems in our hearts, we've got to come and take care of that and deal with that situation and monitor our hearts and think about ways that we can protect it and grow the strength of our hearts. And so I think that the reason why Solomon says Doing that with diligence or vigilance is because it's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. There are going to be some life changes that we have to make in our lives to figure out how to properly care for our hearts and how to identify spiritual issues in our lives uh, and and get them uh, to change. Our hearts can be confusing or challenging sometimes, and they're hard to predict or, or protect and see the direction they need to go in. Um, the first verse that we read this morning, what Jared read for us in Jeremiah, it said, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the answer right after that is, I, the Lord, search the hearts and minds of man and know what they're all about. But it's challenging. It's hard for us to, to know the direction that our hearts are going to be going in. Uh, sometimes we can uh, get angry or, or upset and we don't know why. Have you ever done that? Has that ever happened to you? You're just mad. You're like, why am I so upset? <laughs> I don't know why I'm so angry about this. Um, or, you know, we get uh, upset. We can't figure out the cause. We're discontent in our lives. And we can't think of a reason why. Uh, we're resentful of someone. And we know that, like, that maybe that person has better things than me, but they worked hard for it. They deserve it and all that kind of thing. But I'm still resentful that they have something I don't have. Like, why do I feel that way? It doesn't make sense. Um, or we're jealous looking at all kinds of people and, and the things that they've accomplished and well, why don't I have the same success that maybe someone else has? We have all these issues and things that pop up in our lives and it's like, I want to get rid of it, but I don't know where it comes from. I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't know what to do. And that can be really frustrating and discouraging. But the good news is that God searches our hearts and he's given us the tools that we need to see our hearts for what they truly are and to get rid of the things from our hearts that we don't want anymore and purify our hearts, and, and make them what they want, what he wants them to be. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. This is maybe a familiar passage to most of us, one of my favorites, speaking about the Word of God. Hebrews 
Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, this is kind of cool because I, I see this as kind of like a list of credentials that God's word can do, some like impressive aspects of God's word and the ability that God's word has. And so you see the things that God, God's word is or God's word can do. God's word is living and active. It's timeless. It, it, doesn't, it, it never loses its, its validity. It's been around for thousands of years and it continues to be true. And you can see that in reading through the scriptures and the wisdom literature in particular of just how true and helpful God's word is. Um, it's sharp. It can cut and pierce even the most unpierceable things, even the most unpierceable hearts. But it's sharp. It, it's able to pierce between inseparable things. There's some things in this list that I don't really understand. Like, how does the word of God split between soul and spirit? I don't even know what the difference between soul and spirit is. <laughs> but God's word can divide it. it. It can do things that I can't even imagine. And in that list of really impressive things, you see the last thing in that list? what God's word can do. It is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, in that list of really impressive things, why is that in that list? Imagine if like it said, if Hebrews 4 verse 12 said, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is able to discern the difference between a red light and a green light. Like, well, that's not very impressive. We can all discern the difference between a red light and a green light. So what? God's word can do something that we can't. It can discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That's an impressive thing. And, and so whenever I need help discerning my own heart, figuring out who I actually am, changing my life, I'll be frustrated by that if I try to change myself by myself. But God's word can change me. And it can identify problems in my life. And it can assist me in that process of becoming the person that I need to be for the Lord. Um, one more text that I want to think about in kind of closing up this idea is in Matthew chapter 23, just really fortifying and driving home this idea of how important it is for us to identify problems in our heart and change them. Matthew chapter 23, the section where Jesus is really coming down on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And he says in Matthew 23 and verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. Jesus says here um, that we can appear clean on the outside while being absolutely filthy on the inside. And I think that's maybe something that Christians have really perfected. That's a skill that we can really perfect to polish ourselves up, make ourselves look really good. But inwardly, we know I've got a lot of work and changing I need to do. That was a big problem that Jesus called out with the Pharisees, that you, you put on nice clothes, you wear your big phylacteries, you, talk, you speak all of these scriptures, you write them down on your foreheads and things like that, but you're dirty on the inside. And Jesus says, you want to fix that problem? 
You need to start on the inside so that the outside can be clean. It can be really exhausting to try to keep the outside clean and hide the inside all the time. Think about how liberating it is if you don't have anything to hide. Um, you know, one example, like one particular sin where, where I, we can make a, a really good example of that is like lying. If you're a liar, that's an exhausting life to live because you constantly have to be keeping track of all the different lies that you're telling everyone and like, okay, what did I tell this person? Now, I think I told that person the same thing, but I'm not really sure if I told them that thing. And eventually you start stepping on yourself and you're just constantly worried about being found out. What if you just told the truth all the time? You don't have to worry about telling somebody this or that. It's just so much smoother, so much easier to live that way, to live with a purified inside. And that's what Jesus really wants us to do. Prioritize cleaning the inside first so that the outside will be clean. Um, And if we do that, um, then our deepest threat of a dirty heart will be eliminated and we won't have to worry about letting our outside or our inside come out and people finding out who we really are because who we really are is a purified person by the grace of God. And I don't need to hide that. I want to share that with the world so that others will see my good works and glorify my Father who lives in heaven. That's what we need to do. And so that implies that each of us have some heart cleansing that we have to do. Uh, There's always going to be changes that we need to make. And at the beginning, we said that our heart is kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes getting into the heart of the matter with ourselves is going to be unpleasant. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. It's not easy to purify our hearts. It's not easy to admit that I've got a problem inside of my heart that I need to change. But those that humble themselves before the Lord will be exalted. And so if we humble ourselves and say, Lord, I need help changing, God can change us through his word. And when we look inside of our house, we, and we look inside of ourselves and inside of our, our minds and our hearts and our lives, we might find some things as we're reading through God's word that we didn't even realize were even there. Um, we find guilt where we didn't think it was. We'll find anger. We didn't think we weren't that, all that angry of a person. We'll find greed or materialism when we didn't think that was a big problem in our lives. Uh, we'll find pride hiding itself behind some kind of pseudo-humility. We'll find all sorts of things inside of our lives, and secrecy is one of the greatest allies of those heart issues. Uh, Getting them out in the open, identifying them, seeing them through the mirror of God's word, and getting rid of them as soon as we possibly can is what will, will actually help us to live the lives that we need to live. And so with all of that said, I think that brings us back to this proverb. We'll read Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 just one more time, thinking about our hearts and the actions that we need to take to protect them and help them and grow to be what we need to be. Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Let's pray that the Lord will help us as we work through this situation that we're in where we have a deceitful, wicked heart and we need the Lord to help change us and lean on one another and lean on God's word as we try to grow to be more of what God wants us to be. Thank you for your attention this morning.